Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer. Before we get started with the conversation with our guest, I thought I'd start with a few notes. Today is the first full day of a new administration. That means a lot of staffers are looking for work, but a lot of other staffers are beginning new jobs with enormous stakes for the health of our country, our economic well-being, and our political discourse. Twelve years ago today, I started my first day in the Obama White House, and it was an incredible experience, a real hell of a ride. To those of you who are in that position, I wish you nothing but success. And for those of you who are on Capitol Hill, or really anywhere for any elected official at any level of government, you also have my unending respect for your work to make our country and communities better. I recognize that despite the excitement of new beginnings, it's also a scary time. The number of death threats to elected officials is higher than ever. You know that because you're the ones answering the phones, reading the emails, responding to letters. We also know that some of these threats are very real. Please know that your work is important, and many, many Americans deeply appreciate your commitment, now more than ever. And if you haven't yet listened to President Biden's speech yet, please do. In addition to being an artfully crafted speech, it's a moving statement on the importance of unity. I also want to say thank you to all the protective services that made today's transition of power safe. I'll confess to feeling some sadness that the inauguration of a new president, which should be a moment of celebration of our democracy, was turned into a green zone because of the events of two weeks ago. But that is not the fault of the people who protect our elected leaders. The Secret Service, the National Guard, the Capitol Police, and others deserve our praise and thanks. The loss of Officer Sicknick at the hands of a violent, riotous mob reminds us of the stakes. His bravery and sacrifice, and the heroism of many others that day, deserve remembering and reflection. Which leads me to today's episode. My guest today is a Republican, and we recorded our conversation on January 19th, the day before the inauguration. Like me, he's a former staffer. Josh Holmes has been called the mastermind of Team Mitch. He served as Senator McConnell's chief of staff and the senator's top campaign advisor over a period of five years, from 2010 to 2015. Before that, he held communications roles in the Senate Republican Communications Center and the RNC. He started his career on the campaign trail, where he was the field director for the Norm Coleman for Senate campaign. Then he came to Washington to be the senator's legislative correspondent. I decided to have Josh as my guest for a couple of reasons. One, he's an intelligent and decent person. Full stop. Though I disagree with him about a lot of things, our politics and our desired policy outcomes, I decided that it's absolutely essential to find common cause with people who are willing to call out the verifiable falsehoods that are tearing the country apart. And Josh did that recently, and I thought it deserved further conversation. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Before we get started, I do want to let you know about a way to recognize staffers and thank them for what they do. Go to congressionalstaff.org and send them a note and they can read it. Now, on to the show. Josh Holmes, welcome to Staffer. Jim. It's great to be here, man. This is a this is a fairly professional setup you've got. I'm very impressed. Well, that's because you can't see my end because I'm <laughs> I'm recording actually in our guest bedroom closet, so it looks a little less professional. If you could get the wide angle, I'm, very distinguished I'm, for a my setup here. <laughs> um, well, look, I normally start these conversations with a bit of biography, um, and we're going to get there. But in light of current events, I wanted to start by talking with you about what happened at the Capitol on January 6th, Um, because the last two weeks now almost have been really hard for um, the country, 
and for everyone in our space. Whatever political disagreements and or legislative battles I've been a part of, nothing approaches the seriousness of that attack. Um, and you know, it was done because it was done by people who believe things that are dangerous and wrong. I have given a lot of thought to um, you know what needs to be done uh, to get out of this moment, and specifically about the people who are doing the work today. You have friends who were on Capitol Hill that day. You know, same here. Uh, my wife was even on Capitol Hill that day. The photos of people barricading themselves in offices are heartbreaking, and it could have been so much worse had there been yeah. more staff there, had there been more members accessible on both sides of the aisle. There's been reporting that you know the crowd was chanting and looking for Pelosi and Schumer. They came horrifically close to the vice president. Had they found your old boss, you know his life would have been in danger. I'm sure there are staffers today who are thinking to themselves, maybe this isn't worth it. Maybe it's just too dangerous. What would you say to them today? Oh, man. You know, I, look, I agree with everything in your your run-up about just the significance of it. There's both the macro concern about the direction of the country and the place that we find ourselves in politics, and then there's the personal aspect that you made reference to. You know, I'm, when attack first happened, they went to a couple of stationary cameras in the rotunda, and, and you were watching people kind of walk through the, the rotunda unclear of what was ultimately going to happen. But, you know, you could see my old office at the right angle from that. And I was watching it from the perspective of, you know, I know an awful lot of people who are on the other side of that door. And I wonder, I wonder what they're thinking. Um, and I think, look, Jim, it, this, there's no easy answers. And I, I hope we can get to, to some of the thoughts, because I think you've got a good head for a lot of this as well about where we go from here. But, but ultimately, I think the first argument is to good people, who got into this business for the right reasons and ultimately want to help uh, fellow Americans, whether they be liberals or conservatives, you got to make the argument that it's important work and that you've got to do it. And because a failure to do it means that some of the elements that we've seen, the extremism on both sides, um, can take root in a way that ultimately brought us what we saw on January 6th. And it can do it in a more mainstream way than you can ever imagine. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about the QAnon stuff and all the sort of baffling conspiracy theories that it drove much of this insurrection, but not as much discussion about, you know, the other 40, 50, 60,000 people that found themselves on the Capitol lawn that have absolutely no interest in that kind of thing, but were there because they supported a president who told them earnestly that this election was stolen from them. You know, and they were operating under the under the re very real to them auspices that their democracy was in danger. And you know, I think we got. I think to get out, we we ultimately this isn't. You don't make fun of people, right? You don't you don't call everybody stupid for believing what they believe. That this it's not reality. The reality is is we've got a very poisonous information flow in this country that doesn't really have a partisan lens. It's poisonous on on every side. But we really, you know, people who who have an obligation who are in the in the arena, I think need to be honest about the severity of the crisis and where we go from here. So I, I want to give you uh, credit for some things that you said on your podcast, Ruthless. Um, 
in reference to the rally that the president held just before the attack, uh, this was, I think you said this the day after the attack. You said, quote, unfortunately, the program, meaning like what he said and the, and the, the speakers there, was full of inaccuracies about what is happening in this country and could lead a legitimately patriotic good person to believe that their country is under siege. You went on to say, I heard Matt Gates say that this is Antifa. This is how we got here. It wasn't fucking Antifa. And just today, right before uh, we started recording, uh, your old boss, Mitch McConnell, said, the mob was fed lies. They were provoked by the president and other powerful people. And I think, and I want to give you credit and him credit for belling the cat on one, the underlying lie that it was stolen, and two, the aggravating language that got them stirred up and in a fighting. I mean, they were essentially directed, right, to go take matters into their own hands. Now, we have watched the president use language similar now, you know, for four years. It didn't quite lead to this outcome, but he has used um, barrier-breaking, you know, hot language for four years. And you've, you know, you've called out people, the Lynn Woods of the world, other, you know, some electeds who are either silent or have repeated it. How do we get out of it? So if you, you know, like if, if you're a staff member who either works for one of these members or works for a member who may disagree with them, how, how can they advise their bosses to rebut the verifiably false things that take root if they're unchallenged. Yeah. Um, well, I, I'm glad you, you brought up a couple of things from our Ruthless podcast. You know, we did a the day before on the 5th, we did an episode that was dedicated entirely to basically saying none of this stuff is true, right? And in retrospect, we were immensely proud of, of that episode in particular because, you know, look, we've got a conservative audience. We do a little different thing than you all do here. And we're, we're, we try to bring just straight kind of humor uh, and and try to make fun of the day's events from a conservative perspective. And, um, and you're saying we're humorless, Josh. Fun, I, I, can, I can make fun of myself by accepting a phone call in the middle of this interview. So I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> um, if it's but, important, but, Josh, you can take it. It's fine. Yeah, no, 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 I won't. I won't dream of it. But I, um, in retrospect, there's not enough of it because it's thankless work. Um, we know that the information flow rewards partisanship in a way that it hasn't forever in this country. In that, um, it doesn't even really matter if you're a, a in a purplish district or state. There's no reward for bipartisanship currently. There is immense reward for feeding people what they want to hear. You know, and um, the, the real problem that we've got to, and, and again, I, I have my critiques of the, the left with the, the Russiagate stuff and all of that, but the real problem that we got to on the right here is that there became such a cult of personality around Trump and such a distrust of institutions in this country, whether it be the media or um, government itself, that nobody was willing to listen to anybody other than Trump. And- Politicians who knew better, and I'm really confining this critique to the three months after 
the election because I think this is where it just boiled over. It, who knew better? People who knew better also understood that there was immense political damage for standing in the way of it. And they hoped it would just kind of go away. And I think for those of us who've been involved in nothing like this, but in iterations of kind of more extreme elements in both parties over the last 20 years, you know that you have to confront it head on. And, you know, look, if the truth gets you run, it gets you run. But but you've got to figure out how to build coalitions around facts and truth and honesty and whether it's conservative approach or a liberal approach, those are the, really the principles that guide our ability to do this. I, I couldn't agree with you more on that. And, and underlying all that is humility. It's humility right. to be wrong, right? And an agreement between two parties who are going to do their best to win an argument to say, we will take this third party you know, view and react to it, not ignore it, not denigrate it, and maybe that's science, maybe that's the courts, the Congressional Budget Office, right? There are, there are lots of third parties that we can't tear down. We have to say that's where essentially the water's edge is. We will fight to win, but using a verified set of facts and expertise. Yeah. I, and I think that's why, at least from my perspective, there was a, is a big difference between the Donald Trump over the, the four years of a presidency, which I think we can all agree went off the rails on several different occasions, um, and what happened post-election with, for me, if you're not protecting democracy, if you're not protecting the peaceful transfer of power and the institutions of this country, and, and as a conservative, the electoral college which, you know, if we're being honest, there's not going to be a whole lot of Republican presidents if the Electoral College goes away. Um, Correct. You know, those are the things that ultimately far outweigh short-term politics. You know, these are institutions that our country relies upon for governing and the consent of the governed. And you lose that, you lose everything. And I think we found out on January 6th just how delicate a lot of these institutions ultimately are that we've taken for granted for generation and generation. Oh, we are so lucky to be born at this point in human history totally. <laughs> because the thousands of years of human history are pretty ugly. It's just <laughs> force, right? I mean, force wins the day. And right. we have to be, be right. And we have this really fragile thing at this moment in history. And if we don't preserve it, to your point, it can be lost. History yeah. would show that things like that things this fragile will be lost. I, I want to, um, something that came up in the news um, quite a bit were resignations that have come up this past week. We saw um, the communications director for Ted Cruz resign, uh, the spokesperson for Congresswoman Lauren Boebert resign, uh, House Armed Services uh, Committee staffer resigned and, and made his, his resignation letter public. And there's no staffer on public, or rather on, on Capitol Hill, who agrees with their boss 100% of the time, right? Part of the job is accepting that you're going to advocate their agenda, which, you know, mostly overlaps with yours, but may not be total. But there are also times when it is appropriate to resign. And how would you advise staffers who are trying to determine that line for themselves? Yeah, well, I think that it's an interesting question because that line is not always clear. 
you know, and there's a there's a difference between sort of a self-important, self-righteous staffer who believes that they know better than their principal and, you know, being a sycophant on the other side, which is, you know, whatever the boss says, we ultimately do. And and I think any healthy office has a little combination of both. As you suggested, you don't agree with absolutely everything, but, you know, I think you have to agree with the character of the office, the vision of the principal, the the, your colleagues around you. I mean, Jim, I, I'm sure you've told this to a, a number of young staffers. I, I constantly give this speech that it kind of doesn't matter what office you get in with, as long as you are working with people that are generally good people who you believe are in it for the right reasons, who are stand-up character, who, you know, it, it because it teaches you so much more about where you ultimately want to go. You know, every staffer gets into this and wants to be in either White House press, press secretary or the chief of staff. I mean, it doesn't start there, right? But for the people who ultimately get there, usually, usually, you know, we have a, we have a notable exception in, in the current administration, but usually what happens is people work their way up by associating themselves with quality, good people who give references that you can continue to climb that ladder. And it does take a little bit of look, luck. But I think where that comes down to is when do you resign? I think you resign when you know that that character is gone, that it's not there, that what you thought you were getting into in American politics is not represented by the principle that you're serving. And, and I think that's an easy decision if you're honest with yourself. You know, you... Um... You started talking about career path, and uh, it's a good transition for me to, to ask you about yours. Um, you grew up in Minnesota. Yeah. When did you discover politics? Like, was it, was this something you grew up with? Was it in your family, or you know, when did you get into it? And then, how did you choose it as a career? So it's 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 funny, and you'll never believe this, Jim. But my my parents were two old DFL Democrats in Minnesota, the Democratic <laughs> Farmer and Labor Party, loyal. Walter Mondale and Hubert Humphrey Democrats. Um, and, and you're Alex P. Keaton. <laughs> yeah, right. right. I mean, it's something <laughs> happened. But I, I think, um, you know, my dad always jokes that he wishes that he was involved and he was a lawyer and he wishes he was involved in finance because I would have had a lot, a lot better bank account at this stage <laughs> in my life because all they talked about uh, when, I was, when I was young was politics at the dinner table. And so I got I got really interested early, but I was the furthest thing from a from like a college Republican that you can come up with. I mean, I, I literally, I mean, look, I had a lot of fun. <laughs> you know, my, my, I did not uh, envision a career in politics, shall we say? Uh, my my choice of of going to college was Arizona State University, and I can assure you, it was not the academia that came calling. Um, <laughs> I, I went there because it sounded like a lot of fun, and it was. <laughs> um, uh, but I, you know, I didn't. I, again, I didn't get involved in any kind of politics down there. I, I had a, a a kind of a freak life deal where I ended up with this bizarre kind of brain surgery that I needed to have as a sophomore in college. I didn't have a very distinguished college career at the time, but I actually had to leave school for for brain surgery, and and, and I was hung up in a hospital bed and at home back in Minnesota for the better part of six, eight months. And I had an awful lot of time to think about things. And, um, wow. And, and to say that I didn't have a clear career path at that point was like very understating it. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I did. 
I mean, my dad was like, you know, you should probably consider like a gas station or, you know, just something to get some revenue into your bank account because you are not going to make it, son. Um, but I started thinking about things and, you know, politics sort of came back as something I was interested in. And my dad urged me to go do a Washington semester program at American University, which I had no connection to. And it happened to be uh, the first day was two weeks before 9-11. And, um, wow. And I was on Capitol Hill, um, you know, after that, and, and that was a formative event, you know, for those of us of a certain age, um, that changes the way you look at politics much at, you know, I, I imagine what we were, we're dealing with right now, I think has got a, a way of doing that, but that's, that was a serious, serious moment for anybody who was involved in public service and what they thought about their country and how they could serve their country. Uh, that was a moment where you know, for me, I knew I was going to, I was going to be involved in this for the long haul. And so you came out, uh, of college, you worked, uh, in campaigns, right. For, um, Norm Coleman to get him elected to the Senate. And then you came to Washington as his LC and you have been in a number of official roles and political roles. Which do you like better and why? Well, it's definitely, definitely campaign. Um, but there are some caveats to that. I will say, you know, my first campaign experience, every, everything that, ha- that happened in my career is just sort of happenstance and, and just wild. I mean, the nine 11 coming out for an internship, that first campaign that I, I worked on was against Senator Paul Wellstone, who passed away in a plane crash 13 days before the election. I mean, what, you know, it just, it, for whatever the partisanship and all of the, everything that you get into. I mean, I was at a, a, a debate with Senator Wellstone, his staffer. I was with Coleman and, you know, several others of us and backstage preparing for a debate like two days before that. And two days afterwards, they're gone, you know, and the guy I was chatting with passed away, you know? And so it, it provided a, a context to me about politics that it's, this isn't all a game, you know, it's not, I think the shorthand for a lot of people who get involved in campaigns is, you know, it's the last kind of game grown people can play. That's not a, an actual professional sport, right? Cause it's, you, there's a competition, there's an end date. It's sort of counting down the clock, but it's so much more than that. And it affects real people in, in real ways. And so I, I think, again, that kind of gave me a different perspective for where we ought to, my career ought to go from there. And I was fortunate enough to, to join Senator Coleman in, in DC and, and then go on from there. Um, I, but I ultimately, you know, in all honesty, Jim, I got hooked up with Ken Melman, who uh, mm-hmm. was a huge um, influence on my career. He was um, uh, the campaign manager for President Bush in 2004, but ultimately became RNC chairman went on to KKR and all kinds of amazing financial career afterwards, but he's really a deep thinker and a, and a smart guy and a, and a profoundly decent human being um, who taught me an awful lot about how to face uh, extremism in your own party, uh, how to face challenges with total integrity. You know, he, he, he ch- tackled a few of them in his day and, uh, and I give him an awful lot of credit for, for giving me the ability to sort of see see through um, a lot of the things that are happening now and have happened since in my career um, and ultimately get to a place where I feel like I can see this 
fairly clear-eyed. You know, you you eventually uh, became Senator McConnell's chief of staff, and when you're chief of staff, you are responsible for a whole lot of things. But within there is hiring, and you know, you talked about the importance of selecting uh, colleagues and mentors who you really admire and have good character. How did you select, you know, as the hirer on Capitol Hill and for an operation of that significance and size? How did you select people? And did you have a favorite question that would shed light on uh, the type of character or, or skills that you were looking for? Um, it's interesting. I think I, I tailored each interview to each person and some of the concerns that I may or may not have and to get them addressed. But for my first week, Jim's is like so classic. I, I'm, I was 30, right? I'm 30 years old. I'm a chief of staff to the Senate minority leader. I'm freaked. And I know, I know damn well, everybody around me knows I have no idea what, I, what I'm doing. Right? <laughs> I'm still, I still look like the guy who the lobbyist comes in and they're like, do you have anybody else to meet with? You know? <laughs> like, I still look Can like I the meet guy with the chief of staff. Like, yeah. Right, right. So my first day, an intern in our office, I inherited, you know, all this, this office, an intern went down to the the Senate Russell Rotunda where senators were giving interviews. And after Senator DeMint, who is then a South Carolina senator who we did not have a great relationship with office to office, finished his interview, this intern decided to give him real-time critiques. <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and extremely inappropriate ones, right? To the point where this wasn't like just a simple mistake. Like he was... He was in his face and he was, I mean, this was, it was not good. And I, I, this is day one. This is day one. <laughs> so I called a couple of people. I'm like, how do I handle this? And they're like, you got it. You, it's an intern. You got to cut the cord. You can't, I mean, there's no, the message that this sends to the rest of your staff as a 30 year old intern. Like you got to show some muscle here. So in the best possible way with, with holding, you know, giving the kid hopefully some lessons that he could apply in the future. I just said, look, we got to go our separate ways on this and, you know, I'll help out in a different internship. Anyway, that's day one. And, and, and simultaneously, I've got this other kid who is walking in for an LC interview and I'm all frazzled and he's just like a very calm, very collected, but, but you could tell just sort of supremely confident young man. And I, I interviewed him and hired him and he ultimately became the chief of staff, uh, like 10 years later. So, so like I'm day one, I got both poles to deal with and I don't know if there's a secret to it, <laughs> but like it worked out, I guess. <laughs> so uh, let me also ask you about the kind of the legislating, uh, aspect of the job. Um, obviously Capitol Hill is known for its partisan warfare most of the time, but Periodically, there are big bipartisan deals, and you were a part of them. Um, you know, when when Senator McConnell was negotiating with the Obama administration, um, can you tell me something that you're particularly proud of from your era uh, yeah. as chief of staff? Two episodes stand out, um, and there were people far smarter than I who figured out the the pathway in terms of the legislative machinations of it, but. But um, ironically, they were both negotiated with with now President-elect Biden um, and Senator McConnell. And one had to deal with a debt ceiling that ultimately became the Budget Control Act, which um, 
it's hard to contextualize now for people because it sounds kind of boring, but at the time you had credit markets crashing. Um, there was a huge deal that Bob Woodward wrote about uh, between Speaker Boehner and President Obama about this big deficit reduction plan that fell through basically 72 hours before the deadline. And the economy is really in a bad spot. And, you know, one of the things that I, I really learned from McConnell in that stage is, is you can get these things done. It just requires total focus and an ability to understand what your negotiating partner needs in order to get to the finish line. It has nothing to do with you trying to convince them of your point of view. That's that, that doesn't work, especially in a really small time frame. What works is understanding here are the three things I know you need to go back and sell this. Here are the three things that I need. Can we find that middle ground and iron this all out? And get this to, to drafting, and they the two of them had a really, really good ability to do that. Um, that was the first time they did it again on uh, the uh, uh, fiscal cliff, which you you recall was the expiration of all of the tax cuts from the Bush years, um, and and all of them were going to go back up, including I mean really sort of harmful, hurtful tax increases on working class Americans. And so, and there was a, there was a consensus sort of in the middle that we ought to figure this out, but there were some party, you know, dynamics there on both sides that there was contributed to pretty partisan view of, of getting to a final solution on the, on the, what the package would look like. And the two of them, again, I think inside of the same time frame, about 72 hours, if I recall correctly, McConnell basically called Biden and said, Hey, Joe, um, you know, I hate to do it to you again. Uh, cause it, every time it did, you know, like Biden caught tons of flack from, from his democratic colleagues, uh, former colleagues in the Senate. Cause they felt like he was kind of going around him a little bit, but he always understood how to get to the end of the game. And so, you know, they, they got that done. And those are the two that really stand out, Jim. I think there's a number of, of little things that were consequential and important for the country. Um, but those are the two that were really white knuckled experiences. And a lot has been made of uh, the president elect's relationship with McConnell and his familiarity with the Senate and, and members generally. Do you think that that relationship between the two men, um, that awareness of each other and their, their history of, of working um, through tough problems, do you think that'll lead to some bipartisan uh, successes here early in the new Biden administration? Yeah, I mean, look, the challenges are obvious, right? And and it takes more than a willingness to work together when you're talking about some of these issues where they're just sort of ideologically incompatibility. Um, so, you know, I'd be lying to you if I told you that, like, you know, pure bipartisanship's breaking out overnight and we're just going to usher in all of these massive reforms. Like, I don't think that's going to happen. But I do know that there's not going to be a disaster, right? And because I've watched the two of them work together in a very high pressure environment where their respective constituencies did not want to make a deal. And they were able to make a deal under those circumstances. So I think we, what I can say with assurance is we prevent disastrous outcomes. Now, I think there are many things that they can do together. Um, and it's, it's going to be interesting to, to watch the two of them navigate their own constituencies to do that. Obviously the house of representatives is not an irrelevant part of this equation. Uh, it's very relevant. 
And I'll be really interested to see if it works like it did in the Obama years with a Speaker Boehner and a thinner Republican majority where Nancy Pelosi had an awful lot to say about what what final products look like because she had to provide the votes, if that's the same with, with Kevin McCarthy or not. And that could change that dynamic an awful lot. If they're passing things on a pure partisan um, vote number out of the House and landing in the Senate, then yeah, you're just going to have to be a, a ton of negotiation because they're still, you know, divided entirely equally. And, uh, and, and some of these issues, it's going to be awfully difficult to see how you get 10 Republicans to support. Yeah. So um, I want to uh, read something that um, someone who is very well known said about you, uh, Charlie Cook, who is the preeminent political observer and prognosticator and author of the Cook Political Report, which everyone in politics and government knows, uh, called the campaign that you ran, the re-election of McConnell in 2014, quote, flawless. Many other people in my preparation for this interview, reading about you, have talked about your political acumen, your calm under pressure, your management style. Um, but forget about the praise. Let's get to self-criticism. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. I was going to okay. just keep this part of the interview. No, this is great. No, no. Uh, we're going to edit that part out. Um, <laughs> what do you, you know, just on reflection, uh, just like what, what, what is something that you guard against? I, you know, I hate to call it, you know, I don't want to call it a weakness or a flaw, but what's something that you know about yourself that you're like, I do this because I'm compensating for that? Oh, God, there's a ton, Jim. I think we're all... I don't think you can have any success in this line of work unless you are entirely aware of your own shortcomings. And hopefully you surround yourself with people who are much better at those things than you are. Um, you know, like I mentioned, when I was a chief of staff, I was not a legislator, right? I was a message guy and I understood politics. And so I needed somebody to get the policy, you know? And so I surrounded myself with people who are really smart in that regard and could help kind of break through that. Um, you know, I, I, I try to not overreact. So I think part of this is cultural being a Minnesotan. Like we're always, they, everybody say you're Minnesota nice, right? Which is kind of true because we're nice to everybody to your face. Right. We also, <laughs> we also harbor this just burning anger about people who deliberately slight you. <laughs> right, and I think it's like partially the Scandinavian component of being, you know, it's like they're just kind of a stoic. You just just burns inside you for, but but I hold on to it, right? And and it, it, I don't like that aspect of of the way that I have operated. Is that I feel like I know people grow and change and have different perspectives over time. And I shouldn't hold those kinds of grudges, but damn it, it feels so good. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that, that actually reminds me of, of something about our, our culture generally, uh, our political culture in particular, which is like, we're all taught to win, right? I mean, like anyone who comes up in politics, like first rule is you got to win. If you don't win, then you have no say in the policymaking. You're just sort of, left outside the room. So rule number one is win. But um, winning at all costs, right, leads to some very ugly behaviors. And restraint is actually a very important 
part of political conduct. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, will the House, you know, do stuff with its majority that it can because it can? Yeah. Um, you know, and I just, uh, you know, a lot of folks look at Senator McConnell's, you know, refusal to move Merrick Garland. Right. Yeah. But move Amy Coney Barrett as like uh, he did it because he could. Right. What? Right. And so. Yeah. Just as a political ethic, what is the role of restraint in your view? Well, I think there's a big difference between maximizing your ability to win using the leverage that's afforded to you, both ethically and by the law, and just basically being a ruthless executor of all of the levers that are given to you. I think that's that's one set of category. The other category is crossing those lines and doing what we saw the last two months out of the White House and spinning a narrative that was not true in order to try to get people essentially bullied into overturning a democratic election. That's the core, that's a core tenet of our democracy. Our, our country does not work have, if that happens, right? At what point, I mean, you know, it sounds trite, but if you have a democratically elect uh, election and the loser doesn't observe the loss, like you don't have an election either. You know, it just, it is what it is. So, so I think you have to have reverence for this country. You have to put the, our history, uh, uh, the wars that we fought, the, protections that our forefathers put into place to try to keep us on the rails, you have to have reverence for it. If, if for some reason winning becomes more important than your country, then get the hell out of politics because that that's why we're here. Like that's not winning. That's losing. And that's losing for everybody. That's not just losing your, your, your political party, your ideology, that's tearing down the very fabric of the country. And I think we got dangerously close to that, Jim. I, I really do. I, I, I think, look, I, you know me, I've been loath to walk out and criticize my own party for all the obvious reasons, but I, I also just don't enjoy it. You know, I think at this stage of my career, sitting back and, and criticizing everything that everybody else does is sort of petty, but this, this can't stand. This kind of thing can't happen. You can't allow it to happen because if it does happen, it just gets escalated from here. You know. Well, this is the one one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you because you're so thoughtful about these things, and also like when I look at the Republican Party, I know it is not monolithic, and I know that it's actually a minority of the party of the party's base or the party's you know voters that are sort of over and gone. Right. And are believing things that are dangerous and are and are moved to action like we saw two weeks ago. But as a Democrat, I also know it's not the Democratic Party that's going to succeed in moving those people or, yeah. you know, and it's not probably not the mainstream media, not scientists. You know, like when I it is Republicans is Republican leaders. Winning right this divide um, so that they can win the primaries and and general elections with candidates that are exactly where you described they ought to be. Um, and I guess, you know, a, a related question is, look, let's look ahead now, 2024. 
who in your mind is a candidate that could both win and also win in the right way for the Republican Party to put Trumpism behind it? Yeah, well, I think there's been a lot of people who've distinguished themselves in the last two weeks, frankly. Um, and the one thing that's hard to communicate to liberals, Democrats, just anybody that doesn't sort of identify as a Republican or a conservative is, is what the pressure internally feels like when 60 or 70% of your base is on the other side of it, right? It, it is, it's, it's a difficult, difficult calculus because you know, there's no political future in doing the right thing. And you, you hate when the right thing and your political situation become into direct conflict, but that's what we've seen over the last couple months. And I thought, um, Tom Cotton was somebody who's handled this extremely well. Now I know liberals, uh, will hate everything about Tom Cotton, right? Which is, is certainly not what I hate about, uh, any of this. Cause I, I, I actually <laughs> appreciate him, but I think he is one of those people who has ambitions in 2024 and beyond who looked at this and said, yeah, the easy way out is what Josh Hawley did, right? The easy way out is to just sort of say, yeah, no, Trump's right. And let's just pretend like this didn't really happen. Um, and he just chose a different path and, and basically blazed a new trail. I think Tim Scott, South Carolina Senator is another one who's, who's done that throughout the Trump presidency. I think he has spoken very meaningfully, particularly on, on, the, the racial issues over the, the summer that were so divisive within the Republican Party and abroad is that he just took a minute to sort of speak as someone, as an African-American in the South who has a different perspective than your average Republican, right? And, and meaningfully spoke to that, didn't apologize for a damn thing, just spoke directly to the Republican base about that. You can see how that translates going forward. Somebody who's willing to do that at that time. And then again, you know, last week voted to, to uphold the electoral college vote. Somebody who's willing to do that when they know the short-term politics doesn't reward it are people that like leaders that you really have to look to, because I, I think there are precious few, both Republicans and Democrats who make that choice these days. Yep. Okay. Uh, we're coming up on the end here. I have a, uh, a, couple of actually three questions that I like to ask on a recurring basis. Um, <laughs> one we started talking about, um, it's called Across the Aisle. I'd like you to name somebody who you haven't named before, publicly, okay. ideally, that you really admire and why. This is going to shock people. Um, you're talking about a, a politician? Yeah, ideally. But you know what? It can be it can be a staffer. You know, it, it can I mean, be there's somebody tons who you've worked with. There are tons of staffers that I, I yeah. know, respect, like a lot and could get a ton of things done with. Um, so I won't go there. Let me, let me just go for the shock and awe uh, component of this. I have always had a begrudging respect for Rahm Emanuel. Um, All right. And part of it is because he too is a ruthless executor of how to best position yourself for victory, but also, you know, observing all the things that you ought to appreciate in the process. He's taken on his party on things that I think he rightfully should have teachers unions and the like. Um, 
and and he plays to win, man. That guy, that guy has got knives out at all times. So that's going to shock people. Nobody will believe that I said that out loud. Um, least of all Rom, who I had very few interactions with, uh, and certainly would never admit to this in front of him. <laughs> um, so I'm I'm glad you said him, and it, it, you know what you described as um, the vice president's ability and Senator McConnell's ability to sort of see what the other person needs. That really yeah. is a skill that he has as well. And he's known for his political skill and his aggressiveness and all the rest. But he can put himself in somebody else's shoes really well. Yeah. Um, okay. Now let's go back uh, to story time. The segment is called In the Vault. Tell me a time when you royally screwed up and like, what was it and how'd you learn from it? <laughs> Oh my gosh. I've got so many great ones to choose from. Um, this one is the funniest. I had left the McConnell Senate office in 2014, uh, to help run the campaign because it was a, a mixture of a right versus left problem that we had in Kentucky. We were being primaried on one side and had an enormous amount of resources being poured up in in the general by Democrats. And so it just kind of felt like we were getting squeezed and it was an all hands on deck experience. And I mean, I was working end to end. I mean, I was in Kentucky Monday through Fridays. I would get on a plane. I'd fly back to see my wife on Saturday and, and I'd get back to Kentucky on Sunday. And I was just burned. And we were getting towards the end of the primary and started to feel, you know, like we were starting to make some, some serious progress. And um, I went on a, a, my buddy was getting married and I told him I'd be there for a day at a, at a ski trip. And we went on the ski trip and I was sitting on the lift and our video editor on the campaign sent me a video and he's like, Hey, this is really good. We want to put this out. This is like, a, you know, it's a splashy feel good, like awesome Kentucky McConnell video. And I watch it and I'm like, wow, it, you know, it is pretty good, but I'm, I've got ski goggles and stuff on. Right. So I'm, I'm looking at this through the, in my gondola and, uh, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, look, just have somebody put a second set of eyes in terms of like making sure everything is, is kosher legally and everything. But otherwise, you know, you have my proxy <laughs> within like two hours, my phone starts exploding because this video that I had just watched unbeknownst to me included a, a little vignette of a Duke basketball player <laughs> in Kentucky, in Kentucky. <laughs> Jim, there is basically nothing you can do that is worse <laughs> off politically than highlight Duke basketball. A Christian Leitner endorsement. I mean, it's, it's equivalent to, right? Because it's because it's both. You've got you put this Duke player oh. in. Either you're dumb enough to know that that's like politically toxic, or or worse, you're actually antagonizing the Kentucky base. That's right. Oh, oh, it's it's, oh it was terrible. I literally, I almost vomited. I, I spent like the next, I don't even know oh. how long, just like throwing up into a waste paper basket. <laughs> Awful. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's bad. That's pretty bad. bad right? Okay. Let, uh, yeah. Um, last question for you. It's called Hall of Fame. If I could raise enough money and build a Hall of Fame on the National Mall to staffers, who would you nominate as a member of the Staffer Hall of Fame? Um, I think I would. So this guy, Kyle Simmons, who was McConnell's 
original chief of staff, um, was such a, he's, he is such a thoughtful human being. He's got this wonderful, genteel Southern gentleman way about him that, um, and he was fiercely protective of McConnell. And I think he cre- helped create a culture within that office that has allowed McConnell to, to, you know, become basically what he has become over the years. I mean, all of it is a downstream of, of McConnell himself, but I, I think Kyle had so many overlapping qualities with Senator McConnell earlier on in his career that the entire office became this, this cultural dynamic where everybody knew who the, the name was on the door, right? Nobody was sort of a showboat. Everybody took care of each other. You know, if there was a staff assistant who was there her first week or his first week, you know, one of the LAs walked them home, you know, it, it, just this, this, genuinely good culture that helped transcend not only the office, but I think it really gave him a good pathway to ultimately become, you know, the Mitch McConnell we know now. And I think Kyle played a big role in that. So he's a first balloter for me. Uh, I think there's a lot. I mean, honestly, there's, there, there are incredible people on both sides that I've, that I've run into over the years that have played meaning, meaningful roles. You know, Melman is another one that I, I talked about earlier that I, I think had a very selfless approach that can teach you the right things. And, and Jim, you know, I know we covered this, but, but like really as a staffer, that is the only thing you got to look forward to, right? I mean, you can learn anything. Smart person can learn absolutely anything. You cannot learn not to be an asshole. You can't learn. <laughs> it's cultural. Yeah. It becomes, it's who you are. It's what you've surrounded yourself with. And if it's one thing that you can take that gives you a good recipe for success, that's it. Yep. I love it. It's a great uh, note to end on. Josh, thank you for your time. Um, thank you for sharing your observations. Um, I enjoy getting to work with you on a couple of projects and I look forward to more. And good luck with Ruthless. For those who haven't yet listened, you may love it if you're a conservative, <laughs> but I think you would. If you're not a conservative, you may learn something. You may have to take it in doses. There's this warning makes you. me happier, Jim, than knowing that for your research, you had to listen to it. I did. Several episodes. I did. I love it. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. My pleasure. All right. Take care now. See ya. Okay, everyone. I hear the gavel pounding this meeting to a close, which means this episode of Staffer is adjourned. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. 